My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, so I'd love for you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We'll read in that passage in just a moment. We're in a series that's called The Standard. The first week, Pastor Carlos got it started with this idea, the standard of giving that God establishes. In the second week, his topic was the standard of giving that Jesus teaches, and he walked us through the gospel of Jesus taking and showing us what it looks like for Jesus to teach us about giving. And then today, my topic is the standard of giving that the Holy Spirit enables. The standard of giving that the Holy Spirit enables. First, let me start with one of the stories of this latest news cycle. And uh, I don't know how many of you would be familiar with this. It was a pretty big story, I think. Um, and, and don't judge me on the details. I may have gotten some wrong because this is way outside my area of knowledge. But one of those news stories uh, that happened this week was the collapse of FTX, uh, cryptocurrency exchange. Some of you guys are like, what is cryptocurrency? Some of you are like, the only thing I have is Bitcoin. I, I don't know where you fall in, the, in, in between. But it sounds like from all reports that the CEO of the company, Sam Bankman-Fried, practiced some pretty dodgy business practices. Uh, that uh, a lot of things that he stood for and was about seemed to all be for show. In fact, he was, he was this person, he's the CEO of this company that collapsed, and he's, he's this person who has lobbied for more regulation around cryptocurrency. And one of the things that people have sort of flocked towards him on is the fact that he's this billionaire whose goal was to give away all of his money. Now, I'm sure there's a lot still to be revealed, and what, what, I, don't, I don't know, we'll see what happens. But for right now, their companies have gone bust, and things look pretty bleak. But what interested me the most in this news story was when I saw and read an interview that someone had with Bankman Freed. An exchange of messages on Twitter, they went back and forth, and in this article, this reporter was asking him, like, what happened? How'd you get here? And you see these very honest replies. And so in the middle of all this bleak situation, it was like kind of one of these moments, it was kind of refreshing to be like, oh, he's like, here's the honest what he thinks. And, and they get to the part about his ethics, about why he was, you know, the way, like, you know, and basically the reporter asked, did you even mean what you said when it came to you wanting to give away all your money? And I'm kind of paraphrasing all this. But he basically says, no, it was all a show. It was all about building a reputation. I want us to have a similar type assessment of our lives when it comes to giving. For us to think about why do we give? You've probably been taught, if you've been in church at all, you've been taught to give, you've been taught to give 10% probably. And the question is, do we follow that just because we think that's the right thing to do? Do we give just because we want to build some kind of reputation like he did? 
why is it that we have in our own hearts to give? So as you think about that question, we're going to um, pop into Acts chapter 4. And I want you to notice that, well, actually, let me, let me first, before we get to Acts 4, let me just look at Luke 21 for a moment. You don't need to flip there, but I think I have the text on the screen Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasure. He saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So when Jesus talks about giving, he says, here's this widow who only has two small copper coins, and here's these others, these rich, who are putting in much more than she does, but she gave the most. So we know from that teaching alone that giving can't be about for us just doing what is expected or doing what is most public or doing what would be tradition. And yet for the rich of that day that Jesus was speaking to and for the rich today and possibly you and I, that can be very much the case, that when we give, it's just about doing what's expected. It's just about following tradition. It's just about building a reputation. But the scripture shows us another way. Let's look at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This might be a familiar story. A lot of us would look at this story and say that's some kind of utopian church experience. I mean, this is amazing. Let me just kind of pick out some of the things happening in these verses. In verse 32, it says they're one, one heart, one soul. You see incredible unity. Again, in verse 32, it says they're willing to give to meet any need. We have unmatched generosity. In verse 33, it says that they were giving their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus powerful boldness, and great grace was upon them all. We see the special favor of God on their, on their church. And then in verse 34, it says, there was no needy person among them. So in their output, there was very tangible care that was taking place. I mean, that's amazing. Think about that. Incredible unity, unmatched generosity, powerful boldness, the special favor of God, all with this tangible care taking place. What if that is what we saw here? Is that what we're seeing here? Lord, we, we want it to be so. And here's the question I wanted to ask. As, as, okay, let's look at that passage. Now let me ask, what made that church that way? How did the Acts 4 church come about? And I want to answer that just by simply looking at how the Acts 4 church came about. But first, a warning before... I talk about how the Acts 4 church came about. Um, my dad, several years ago, gave me a gift that was a perfect dad gift for another dad. It was a um, 
box remote code thing that you put, I don't even know what it's called, but like a remote code thing you put on the outside of your garage, you know, where you can type in your numbers and your garage goes up, that kind of thing. This is perfect. So you never get locked out. You never have any trouble. You, like you always have that to go to. Thanks, Dad. Um, well, I'm starting to install this thing, and Dad wasn't there to help me install it, so I'm trying to install it the best I can. I'm like an hour into the install, and it's, I've gone nowhere. Uh, it, it really wasn't that complicated, but um, I, I've watched like at least five YouTube videos. At that point, I finally open up the directions, <laughs> and then... Next, I mean, I'm like, I'm, I'm so desperate that I downloaded the, the garage, like the actual garage door manual to like look through it to find more clues to how to do this. Nowhere. And then it dawns on me. I can't remember how I finally saw it. But when I looked up at the garage motor thing, <laughs> there was a different name than the one I had typed into Google. I had read the garage door wrong, and therefore I was looking at the wrong kind of garage door. Therefore, my remote was not syncing to the wrong, to the, you know, to the wrong garage door. So five minutes later, it was working just like that. I spent an hour wasted there. So to use that analogy for a second, if we want to think about the Acts 4 church and how, how that Acts 4 church came about, and what I hope for us is to say, we want to be that church too. It's not going to come from what I just said earlier, that like us just following tradition, us trying to build a reputation. To be that kind of generous kind of church, we have to follow the right set of instructions, if you will, to follow that analogy. And, and so let's look at how the Acts 4 church actually came about. I mean, this is just simple stuff, but it's good for us to stop and think this way. Luke is the author of, the, of Acts. He's also the author of the Gospel of Luke. And in his Gospel, he tells the story of Jesus. He takes us through the story of Jesus, this incredible story, and it finally leads to a place where Jesus is executed, his disciples scatter, and it looks like his whole movement is dead and over. And I want you to flip back now to Acts chapter 2, because we'll actually pick up this story as Peter preaches it in Acts 2. Look at verse 22. It's the day of Pentecost. Peter has this huge crowd in front of him, and he, he starts preaching. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It looks like the whole thing's over. Here comes a good part. Verse 24. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Outside the character of death to be able to hold Jesus down. And so while the Jesus movement looked dead, it didn't die because Jesus didn't stay dead. And that's why we have this book of Acts. So we're here in this this sermon with Peter, he's preaching, he wraps it up with an invitation in verse 38. He says, this is your invitation today if you do not know Jesus. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in response, 3,000 people are added to the church. 3,000 people believe in Jesus and in this story uh, that Peter attests to, 
And then you have verses 42 through 47. That's very similar to the text we've already read in Acts 4. They're, they're, they're just like two, you know, they're, they're side by side. You put them together, you're like the same thing's happening in the early church. Verse 44 says, all who believed were together. They had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. People respond to the gospel. They receive the Holy Spirit. And when they receive the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden they look way different than they ever could previously. And they're giving to meet any need that, that, that pops up. Okay, now we move to Acts chapter 3. We have Peter and John in the temple, and they heal a handicapped man. And this causes all kinds of commotion. Because everyone had seen this man and, and known him. He had this reputation for being outside there and begging. And, and so when Peter and John heal him, everyone's like, what's going on? Who are these guys? And they all gather around him. There's this huge crowd, and they start preaching Jesus. Sadducees don't like it. In fact, the, the Bible and the scripture are there. It says they are annoyed about this commotion, and so they arrest them. Peter and John spend the night in jail, uh, or in whatever way they were imprisoned, and, and then they call them forth. They have a little, you know, back and forth, what's going on, tell us what. Eventually, they come to this conclusion. They say, look, Peter and John, you can't talk about Jesus anymore. How do you think they respond? You can't talk about Jesus anymore. They say, uh, well, we can't do that. And they send them away because they can't do anything else because right now they have the favor of the people. Now here's what I want you to see. When they get back to the other believers, to the church, this is verse 24 of Acts 4, okay? So now we're, in, we're caught up into Acts 4. They pray. I want you to listen to this prayer. Acts 4, verse 24, they lifted their voices to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the, the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers who were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. He's quoting them from the Old Testament in their prayer. They're saying, we knew, you knew this was going to happen. But this was according to your plan, Jesus. In verse 29, they say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats they, they, they knew that these rulers had just killed Jesus. This is shortly thereafter. They know that Peter and John are like, well, they could absolutely kill us next and have us executed. So they pray, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So when faced with certain persecution, the church turns to the Lord and says, God, will you make us more bold? Look at verse 31 at how God answers. 
And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I mean, can you imagine what that had been like? You get together with your friends, you're praying together as a church. We're in here this morning, we're praying together, and just all of a sudden, stuff is shaking everywhere. Oh, Lord, you're here. And that physical demonstration was uh, really a metaphor for what was happening internally for this group of believers. They were being shaken and we, we, we want to romanticize the church and say, like, okay, those are different people, different times, different, different way of life. No, like, we go back and you study those characters, Peter and John, you know, specifically, we have, have quite a view of them in the Gospels. And they are people just like us, right? Peter had just denied Jesus three times. He had run far away because he was scared he was going to get killed. So what does he do? He runs away, and now he's running towards it because Jesus had so gripped his heart. And the way that Jesus answers their prayer when they're faced with persecution is not to say, hey, guys, I'll take care of it. I'll make sure you're safe. He answers their prayer by giving them that boldness that they asked for. So directly on the heels of verse 31, where they're filled with the Holy Spirit, we have this slice of the early church in Acts 4 that I've just read to you at the beginning. How could the Acts 4 church be the Acts 4 church? How do we be like the Acts 4 church? Well, it's this storyline that takes place of these people who've called out to Jesus and have sold out their lives for Jesus. And in doing so, he's so gripped their hearts that even in the face of persecution, they've said, it's worth it. And they've gathered together in prayer and they've asked the Holy Spirit to to, to fill them and to take them and, and to use them. And the result, is this picture, this picture of, of incredible unity, unmatched generosity, this boldness, this special favor of God, this tangible care. Those things happen because of what's happened already. So as we think about what it would look like for us to be that kind of church, I want, I want to cover two areas, two facets, if you will, of Holy Spirit-enabled giving that we see from this text. Holy Spirit-enabled giving. The only way we're going to be able to be like that church is, is through the filling of the Holy Spirit. The first aspect is the head. The second is the heart. We're going to talk about the head for a second. The mindset of, the, of Holy Spirit-enabled giving. Look at verse 32 again with me of Acts 4. It says that no one said that any of these things that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. An often overlooked truth is in the New Testament, our standard of giving is no longer 10%. You've been taught that, you've been said, like, like, okay, you're supposed to give 10%, and that's a starting point, but the new standard of giving defined by Jesus is what? everything. Jesus didn't give 10% of his life on the cross. The new definition of giving defined by Jesus is him on the cross giving everything. It's not that we own 10% and God owns the other 90%. It's that 
what we see in Acts 4 is the way in which we are to live now that nothing that we own is our own. The Christian mindset, what should be our mindset, is that God owns everything. Okay? So this truth is one that we need to be discipled in. It's one that I'm trying to disciple my kids in right now. So we talk about it. We talk about our stuff. We try to bring this discipling truth into our lives. God owns everything. We started this young when our kids started saying, mine, 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 mine. We said, no, no, no. God owns that. That belongs to God. They'd be fighting over a toy, and they say, that's my toy. We say, no, that's God's toy. And the fun, this is the funniest thing. I did not make this up. This is a true story. This morning, we're sitting down having breakfast, kind of. We're kind of like all in a commotion trying to get some food, and, and we've, we've got some pancakes being distributed. We have five kids, and, and so they're going everywhere. Pancakes are everywhere, and um, syrup's on the table, just getting doused everywhere. And one of them says, like, hey, give me the syrup. And they're like, no, this is my syrup. And he's like, no, it's God's syrup. <laughs> it happened this morning. And I was, this is what happened. We end up weaponizing this truth to each other. <laughs> it's God's syrup, okay. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, that's not what we're meaning here. And, and then it gets really hard when they start turning it back on mom and dad, right? Like, well, isn't that, like, that person needs a car, and mom and dad, isn't that God's car? Oh, <laughs> yeah. And we've had multiple questions, hard questions, back at us as we think about our money. Oh, wait, I just said it. So we think about God's money as we think about what resources God has given us and put in our lives to say, this, this belongs to him and I am a steward of what he has given. If you look at verses 36 and 37, we're introduced to Barnabas. His real name is Joseph. Did you know that? We know Barnabas probably most famously from his partnership with the Apostle Paul. It says in verse 36 that Joseph, who was called, the, called by the apostles Barnabas, he was so encouraging that they gave him this nickname. I love that. That's so cool. He was a Levite. He was a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So that's the first time Barnabas shows up in the Bible. He's giving a property away. Are you ready to do that? And believe me, this is just as much back to me. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to myself this morning. Are you ready to give up and sell a house to meet a need? And here's what I know. That there's no way in my natural self that I will ever get there. I'm looking at this house. I'm like, That's an appreciating asset. I've got four girls in my family. They all have weddings I'm going to have to pay for. There's no way I'm selling that right now. Let's figure out some other way to take care of this need. I'm sure someone else has more cash than I do. But in your heart, are you ready to be at a place and in your mind to state this truth that God owns everything, I'm his steward. If he asks me, I will be obedient to give. And the only way you're going to get there is through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
We're not going to be the church in Acts 4. We're not going to give generously until the Holy Spirit takes over our heart and makes us that kind of person. Second facet of this Holy Spirit-enabled giving is has to do with our heart, because it's not just our minds. We can know that truth, we can believe that, that God owns everything, but it boils down to where our heart is. I started off talking about Sam Bankman-Fried, the CEO of FTX. We see him as quite hypocritical in in what he's done. Uh, I I was just thinking about this idea of uh, places where we've kind of been tricked and duped. We hate that. We hate that when that happens. We hate that when someone says to be one thing, but it turns out to be another. I had this experience when I was listening to a podcast recently where um, they were talking about nature documentaries. And, uh, you know, picture that documentary where it's this lone wolf in the Arctic stalking its prey. It's about to take down this caribou, and it's going through the snow. I found out in this podcast that, that it's all made up. I was devastated. Like, not, well, I mean, the wolf stalks the caribou, that part. But, but the, the, like, all the sound effects of this documentary are produced in-house. They say they never used the sound from the actual videos that they produce in the wild. So some guy is in the background with, like, frozen peas going to mimic a wolf going through the snow with his, with his paws. This is for real. This, I'm just saying. I was devastated. I was like, I've been watching this. I, like, I can't believe they had tricked me like this. We hate that. Jesus hates hypocrisy. When he saw uh, what was happening with the Pharisees and the scribes, specifically go look at Matthew 23, he's so angry at these people who claim one thing with their lips, but their lives show something different. So I, want, I didn't want us to miss today, as we looked at Acts chapter 4, what happens in Acts chapter 5. Because right there in the middle of this incredible church experience you have in Acts chapter 5, just as an incredible example of failure and sin and hypocrisy. In verse verse 1 of chapter 5, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? That's important. Like, I'm not saying that we all need to, everybody needs to go put all their money and property into one pot and we just let it go like a communist commune. Peter says, like, look, it belonged to you. It was up to you to steward. He says, but after it was sold, was it not at your disposal too? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his laugh. Boom, he's he's gone. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped up and carried him out and buried him. I mean, this is a crazy story. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. 
It's a sin of hypocrisy. It's a sin of lying to the Holy Spirit. That's leaning into Satan's kingdom. And when we, when we do this, when we act as hypocrites, we are going right in line with Satan. Satan's the, the father of lies. And so when we put our whole life on display as a lie, we are right in line with his kingdom. And that's why Jesus hates it so much. That's why God hates the sin so much. And yet, a return back to where we started today to say, like, it's not that far off probably for some of us that we've gotten into a pattern where giving is just something we do to have that kind of reputation. It's not truly in our heart to give. We like the look of giving. We like the look of being generous. But it's not truly our heart. I mean, that's what Ananias and Sapphira wanted, right? Like, wh- why is it that they would have sold some and held some back? Well, they were looking at somebody like Barnabas who came and he, he had sold land. He had placed it at the apostles' feet and he said, okay, use this church as needed. And everyone's going, did you hear what he did? I mean, if someone did that today, if someone in here gave this huge gift, someone wants to give a million dollars, we'll take it. That'd be great. But if someone did that, we would all whisper, we'd say, that was incredible, can you believe that? To use Jesus' example, if someone who like gave, maybe didn't have a million dollars, but had like a thousand dollars to their name and they gave all a thousand dollars, same thing. We'd say that was incredible. And Ananias and Sapphira want that. They want people to say that was incredible. They want the prestige that comes with that, but they also want their money. The only way for us to live that kind of generous life, the only way to be the Acts chapter 4 church is to be enabled by the Holy Spirit to be that. We need the Holy Spirit to take over our lives in such a way that both our head and our heart are impacted and in line with his kingdom. Where we would say, yeah, that's a lot more important. This kingdom cause is a lot more important than this blank in my life. If someone here today says, I have a need, like I would love to hear it. I want you to come and tell me or tell someone in this room, and I I guarantee you people in this room would say, we'll find a way to meet that need. Because that's the kind of people I know that are here. I've seen it like many times over the years I've been here. Just give us the opportunity. And let's pray for the Holy Spirit to so take over our lives, so to be gripped by him in such a way that would make us that kind of church that we see in Acts chapter 4. Let's lean into that. Let's be that. I memorized in high school Galatians chapter 5, 16 through 20, because I knew I needed that reminder. In Galatians 5, 16, it says that... Um, I memorized in high school, I'm going to have to remind myself. So, so then walk by the Spirit so you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the Spirit and the flesh, they war against each other. So that you don't do what you want to do. But if you're under the Spirit, you're, you're no longer under the law. And here's the prescription I want to give you today. If you say, how do I live a Holy Spirit-enabled, giving kind of life? Is to wake up tomorrow morning and say, Lord Jesus, will you fill me today with your Holy Spirit? Walk in the Spirit. Will you allow me to walk in the Spirit today and not in my flesh?
And he'll answer that prayer as you pray and submit yourself to him day after day, I promise you.